Welcome to the Columbia Church Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Bauckham, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Enjoy the message. Hey friends, uh, summer is uh, fast fleeting, and indeed this is the last of our summer sermon series today, Head for the Hills. And uh, I know a number of people are missing. They try to get in that last hurrah before uh, school starts or they're taking kids to college. I just, uh, I'm missing a couple of college students today. I'm glad they're where they are, but heavy on my heart just not to see them out there. And uh, it is a transitional time of the year. Next week, we'll begin a new sermon series. Uh, It is based on one verse, but it will bounce around uh, through Scripture. It is uh, based on the idea that we are God's handiwork. It's about living life poetically. It is through the lens of faith work and economics, and we'll be looking at three Sundays at our uh, discipleship model in its three phases or its three parts. So it's a great opportunity to get caught up on a lot of stuff, but also a good opportunity to enter the congregation. So if there's someone you've thought about inviting, it's great to catch the beginning of a sermon series next Sunday is a great day to do that. For today, we will put a wrapper on the Psalms of Ascent. I hope you've enjoyed them as much as I have, that you've read them as often as I have, that they have fostered your preparation for worship, as has been the case for me. And uh, just to review, because uh, a lot of you have been here, we've had great attendance in this service and others this summer, and, uh, and so you probably already know that these are Psalms 120 through 134, that they're often called the Pilgrim Psalms that they were sung while going to temple. We don't know what phase, if it's right at the temple or all along the way, I think probably all along the way. So as pilgrims made their way to the festivals, to the big celebrations of worship that were held on the Temple Mount and in Jerusalem, they they were preparing their minds and their hearts using these, which are the oldest extant collection of the Psalms. So these have been really important in the life of the Jewish people and then in the life of the church for many, many generations. It's incredible just to realize how ancient they are. They reflect the thoughts, the hopes, and the prayers of those pilgrims as they do of ours, and they are all about preparation for worship. Now, we can be prepared. We can bring great content. We can provide a great context, but it's all about your comportment, and your comportment makes a bigger difference than all of the rest of it combined. So, How prepared are you to be in the presence of God when you arrive at worship? That's the question that we have been asking. Now, my theory, which is based on the thoughts of many Old Testament scholars, is that these particular psalms were compiled in 959 B.C. at the dedication of Solomon's temple. So you'll remember that David promised God he would build him a temple. David built his palace first. He caught some heat from one of the prophets, as you'll remember, for having thought of himself first and not of God. God still had a tent. David had a palace. And so David said, I will build a grand temple to the Lord our God. And that was his plan, his intent. But God stopped him and said, you will not build the temple. Your son Solomon will build it. The planning had gone on for a long, long time. There had been multiple capital campaigns, but there was a pandemic throughout the land and steel and windows were in short supply and the whole thing got delayed until Solomon came along. And I say that only partly in jest because here was the grand plan for this sermon series. 
This is yet another sermon series, I think one of at least three, that Chris and I planned with the thought that on the last Sunday of this series, we will march together into that new building. So I've got a surprise for you. We won't. So that was the thought. Here we would be preparing ourselves for worship. We've been reading through this collection of psalms that was made for a great celebration, for a great dedication of the temple. And the day that we walked in, that would just be awesome. This last psalm you're going to see would have been perfect for it. But God's timing is better than mine, and I still don't know what that timing is, and I'm afraid to make any promises anymore except to say, I pray that by the end of the year, we'll make our way into that new facility that has been underway for so very long. But as we prepare to go, that just gives us more time to be prepared to go, to prepare our minds and our hearts and our spirits for some new grand movement of God's Spirit in our congregation, some grand movement of worship that will capture not only our hearts, but also the hearts of those around us. And God's building momentum. I mean, uh, you know, COVID was rough. It took a long time for people to start to come in. We've seen more people enter the life of our church in the last few months than we've seen in years. It's absolutely amazing. I think God is preparing something huge for us And he intended that we would not walk in today, but that we'd finish this series today. Nonetheless, envision that we were. Envision the throngs of people that came for the dedication of that temple. The introduction of this psaltery, not only in word, but also in song. Oh, I wish we had the songs, the melodies to these particular poems. I wish we knew exactly how they sounded. If you'll look online, you'll find some people have attempted to put them to song, some of them sort of ancient Hebrew sounding and some of them more modern. And and these are worthy of our thought and our consideration, even if we don't know exactly how to sing them. But there were the throngs of people coming, hearing them for the first time, arriving at the temple. 959 BC, I think, is the date of the compilation of these by Solomon and his priests. Now, a lot of scholars, in fact, I would say the vast majority of Old Testament scholars believe that these 15 psalms correspond to the 15 steps into the temple court. These these are called the southern steps. How many of you have seen them before? Those of you who've been with me have. Some of you have been with others. You've been to this place, and if you've done that, then one of you is going to hit me up after the service. I'm positive, so I'll I'm going to spare you, and I'm going to spare me. So you don't need to do that because you're going to say, look, I've climbed those steps, right, Suzanne? And I was tired when I got to the top of them, right, Suzanne? And there were more than 15, right, Suzanne? And you'd be right, there were 30, because actually there are 15 landing points on these steps. These are the wide steps, and there are smaller steps in between to help you to those steps, just like everything involves little steps and big steps. But even in that day, some people who came to worship had short legs. So they needed the extra steps to get there. There are 15 landing spots. So some scholars have said, you know, maybe what they did is they, at each of those landing spots, they, they sang a song. One of these psalms of ascent matched their movement into the temple, and I think that's a beautiful picture, and I think it's likely to have happened on that day of dedication. But after that, this psaltery was memorized by every Jewish child, 
Everyone knew these by heart, and I think they'd leave their homes and sing these as they prepared themselves for worship. Now, I love the progression of these psalms. I hope you have seen what happens in the course of the movement through them, the shift that is happening in the worshiper, in the person who is preparing to step into the house of the Lord and into the presence of the Lord. And one of those final steps is to search for the unity of God's people, seeking unity. The way I've put it in this particular slide deck is to say we have to be unified because it struck me as I was writing these that we often talk about being united. But have you noticed that unity is a tough thing for human beings to find and sustain? In fact, I'll argue this. The more unity is the thing that we're looking for, the less likely we are to find it. The more we are putting our effort into unity for unity's sake, the less likely it is to emerge. And the more we find unity in common movement, the more it will become a reality. I'll come back to that in a point. It is God who unifies His people. And if we are not unified, it is because we are not seeking God, plain and simple. We can be seeking unity all we want. We can be seeking community, which means our experience of unity, all we want. But unity is a product of the movement of God's Spirit within us. It's a product, a byproduct of being on mission together. I want to jump right into this psalm today without further ado, because these are two short but magnificent psalms. They may be the most beautiful in the entire collection, and I think you always want to finish well. You know, it's not just how you start, but how you finish. And so these, these are finishing well, and the first is the pilgrim singing of one of David's psalms, and that gives it historical context about the unity of God's people. David writes, and the pilgrim sings. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Now, I'm telling you in English that's a loaded deck, but in Hebrew it is a doubly loaded deck. So let's take a look at this and understand what David is writing about. First, historical context. When might David have written this psalm? A lot of Old Testament scholars think that David penned these words in about 1000 BC, whenever the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, were first united into what's called the unified monarchy or the kingdom of Israel. David was the one who united the two that had been separated for generations. And in their union came the golden age, the golden era that's still hearkened to by the Jewish people today. That was the golden era of Israel. It was a magnificent time, and it was an unbelievable occurrence. Many people grew up thinking it was impossible. These two people could never be united. They honored different worship places. They had different traditions, though they came from the same 12 tribes. They were completely separated by any number of of things. And David managed to get them on the same page at the same time, chasing the same goals after the same things. And the unity came from a common search for the prosperity of God's people in one nation. And when that happened, 
It was remarkable. So one of the problems here is that the NIV is missing a word. Now, this happens on occasion in every translation. It doesn't matter what translation you like. I will show you where at least a handful of verses are rendered not well according to the Hebrew. But in this case, I don't understand why the particular translators of my favorite translation, some of yours too, some of you have other ones, and it's missing in some of those too, by the way, why they left out the first clear Hebrew word that is there. And that is a word that is translated. I wonder if some of you are reading like an old translation and you know what that word is. You're looking at it right now. What is it? Somebody had it in the last one. It's behold. Behold is missing. And it strikes me as an important word. I mean, there are lots of places in the Bible where we're told, behold. Uh, Most famously, I I guess, would be Jesus' words in Revelation, behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's a proclamation. It's a statement intended for a particular time and a particular place and a particular moment. And in this case, the word behold would tell us that David is proclaiming something to the people that they need to hear. That David the king is saying something to the people. Take note. Don't miss this. Don't lose track of this particular moment because it's special. Something is happening here There is a unity of God's people we haven't seen in a long, long time. In a moment, I'll show you just how long that had been because David reveals that in the Scripture as well. He says, behold, how good and pleasant, good and pleasant. Now, if you're like me and you're reading in English, you probably conflate those two words because we use the word good in our culture, a lot like we would use the word pleasant. We say something is good if it is pleasing to us, and we use it in all sorts of contexts. So we, we have something to eat we like, and we say it's good. And if we watch a movie we like, we say it, it, it's good. And, and, and if I ask you how you are, you will probably use the word good in your response, though it, it will vary, and I've gotten them all today. I often will hear good, but more often I will hear pretty good. Okay, so pretty good means good, but it could be better, right? Pretty, pretty good. And then somebody else will say, and somebody said to me this morning, not so good. Now, of course, in proper English, we should say well and not so well. But good covers the waterfront now in our culture. It's used in a thousand different contexts and never does it mean what this word means. This is a translation of the Hebrew word I've taught you about so many times, and the word is tov. And that word cannot be translated into English in a paragraph. I didn't ask chat GPT to try it, but I'm telling you it takes a paragraph to describe the meaning of the biblical word tov. It can mean at peace. It has to do with well-being. It has to do with relationship with God and each other. It has to do with a thousand different things. But the biggest thing it means, it is according to God's plan. The first time we encounter this word, as I've taught you before, is in Genesis. And in Genesis, when God creates the heavens and the earth, at the completion of each day's work, he says that it is tov. It is good. In your translations, it says good, but what it really means is it's exactly like I want it to be, but not finished yet. Because after the sixth day, when He creates community. Now, do you understand that God does not create a human? He creates humans. Because it is impossible for a human to have the relationship we see in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
As Marslav Wolf has taught us so well, that great theologian that I heard just a few weeks ago at the BWA meeting, as he's taught us so well, Christian community is a reflection of the Trinity of God. And so he wanted humanity, not a human to be like him, but humanity together to be like him. So he creates the first community. He creates the first marriage. He creates the first relationships. And when he does that and he finishes at the end of that day, he says, you know what he says, right? He says it is, it is very tov. It is very much according to my plan. Now, you know what it's like to finish something, and it is according to your plan. I will tell you that Debbie and I have sub- substantially completed our kitchen project. Praise Jesus. Now, it took, oh, I don't know, twice or more longer than I thought it would Uh, It was 50 times more aggravating than I thought it would be. But along the way, there were these steps of hope. Have you done this before? Because here's the thing. Debbie asked me yesterday, would you do it again? The answer was not right now. Not right now. But probably yes. And I probably would because the end result is amazing. But along the way, there were these little steps. And there were a number of things that I did myself. So I I hung some lights. And when I finished with those, we stood back. Now, understand the whole place was a wreck. But there were those island lights that were hanging over the 10-foot island that I say to Debbie looks like a Hampton Inn breakfast buffet. But I also said, it looks like you could do an autopsy there. And she said, it's going to be yours. Okay, so, so this is a true story. That really happened. So there, I look at at the island without the countertop and the lights hanging there. And Debbie says, what do you think? And I go, it's good. But I didn't say very good. It's a good because there's a lot left to be done. So every step of this process, there was another mile marker in the road. But all I could think of was all the stuff I still had to do. So my knees are really sore this morning, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell you, I'm your pastor, it's not from praying. It's from being on my knees yesterday doing finish work on hard tile. And when I finished that, and we finished the front hallway finish work, and we stood back, everything except a tiny dab of paint here or there is done, and we stood back, and Debbie said, what do you think? And I said, it's awesome. Now let me tell you what awesome means. It means very tov. Very good because you see the finished product and it is what you dreamed of. It is what you envisioned. It's not just that it looks good, it's it's that it's a good that you chose. And in this case, God's good is always better than our good. It is tov. And when something is tov, it is very, very good. And we need to understand that sometimes our lives can be tov when they don't feel good right now. It's only in retrospect that we're able to look back and see the way the pieces come together to create the, the life that God plans for us, assuming we're living it, assuming, or the church that God intends, assuming that we are being that church together. But in this case, David does not just say that it's tov. That is, this is according to God's will that people live together in unity. But he also says that it's pleasant, and that is a very different word in the Hebrew. What it means is, tov means it's pleasing to God. Pleasant means it is also pleasing to the one singing this song. It is also pleasing to David who wrote this song. It is pleasant to our experience. Isn't it awesome 
when something is according to God's will and we get to the point where it's also pleasant to us. It takes a while. But there are these moments. Do you agree with me? They're moments. Sometimes, once in a while, days, on really rare occasion, a week, I, I doubt a year. There are these times where we sit down and we look at our lives and we say, this is not only pleasing to God because He's the one that's directed it, but it's also pleasing to me. It is both pleasing to God and pleasurable to me. So David says, look, when God's people are unified, it's tov and according to God's will, and it's also pleasant to us. When God's people dwell together in unity. Now, I think it's important to dwell on dwell or live for a moment. Because, my friends, it is one thing to say that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is another thing to practice that. It is one thing for us to say that we love the family of God. But nobody can fight like the family of God in these days and times. It's amazing what disunifies us when we are supposedly all about unity or would claim to be. And David says, look, it's not that we feel good about each other. It is that we dwell together in unity, meaning we have a common mission and a common pur purpose that causes us to put aside petty things that may not turn out to be important at all in eternity anyway, and probably many of them won't. Some of them will, many of them won't. It's hard to figure out which is which. What does it mean to dwell together in unity? Now, let me say again, community is not something to be sought. Now, I think this might surprise a lot of people, though I have said it before. It's been a while. But in my experience, the more a church or a couple or a family or a school, or a business, or anything else says, you know what we are going to do? We're going to be all about community. The more they say that, the harder community will be to attain. It's too forced. Community does not come from the search for unity. Community comes from being together in something bigger than ourselves. It comes from chasing a common mission together. It comes from worshiping a big God together. It comes from celebrating the presence of Christ together. It comes from serving the poor together. It comes from building something together. It comes from worshiping together. These goals that we have are goals of lifting, exalting the one true living God and serving Him. And if we will not worry about community, community or unity of dwelling together, will happen as a byproduct of all of that. I know many churches that say community is what they offer. Don't ever let me hear you say that. Please, do me the favor. If somebody says to you, I am thinking about looking for a new something, and you say, hey, why don't you come to Columbia? And they go, why would I want to come to Columbia? And you say, because we have community. People can find community in lots of places. It can be good community. It can be lousy community. It can be community that stands for the right thing. And as we observe in our culture right now, people can really come together around the wrong things. 
Community is not something to be desired. It is something to be discovered as we serve something bigger than ourselves together. And obviously for us, as we serve God together, we will find that community is the byproduct. Now, that's what David's saying too. Don't you see that when we dwell together, when we've put ourselves together to become something great for God, what we are discovering and finding here is beautiful community. Do you know what I mean? Have you you discovered this? Have you found this to be true? This is absolutely biblical for a church. Behold how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Now, before I go on to show you how amazing this is, because you may not think it is if you look at it out of context, let me show you David's two illustrations, because they're fascinating in their own right. First of all, he says, it's like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard on Aaron's beard, down onto the collar of his robe. That is to say, the oil being poured on his head, the blessing that is coming from God, is so abundant it cannot be contained by his hair, nor can it be contained by his beard. I think that's interesting. I've never, ever had a substantial beard. It's not that I can't grow one. It might take me longer than some of you, but it's possible. But on vacation, I've given it a try a couple of times, and Scott, Matt, the rest of you who have, I, I don't get it. I, it's the most uncomfortable thing to me. I, I couldn't stand it. People say, well, you just didn't go long enough. If you'd gone another week, you'd have discovered the wonder of it. Have you guys seen the food that gets stuck in your beards? <laughs> you, you notice the breakfast is in there somewhere? In Aaron's case, it was oil. It was overflowing. It couldn't be contained by his personage. Now, who is Aaron? Aaron is the high priest to Moses. So what David is referencing here is the last time his people were unified like this. And that's when they were running from common slavery, had escaped through a common Red Sea, and had survived something together and were seeking something that had long been lost something that had been taken away from them. I've, uh, I've been wrecked the last few days to read about Lahaina. I don't know if you've ever been to Lahaina, Hawaii, before to Maui, but it was, it was a beautiful place. It was absolutely stunning. One of the articles I read, though, about this tragedy is how the community of Lahaina had recently been split by a couple of issues. If you want to read the article yourself, you can search it. You'll find it easily. And how it had been a pretty disunited community in the last 10 or so years, which I'm like, everywhere in America, right? But in Lahaina, people had been pretty disunified. And all of a sudden, this fire ravages everything they took for granted. And have you heard any of them interviewed, having escaped? What kind of disunity do you see now? None. Maybe some complaint about the local government and what it does or the national, whatever. Maybe some of that. But the people are unified by a common thing that is bigger than they. And that is their need to survive something they couldn't control. Sometimes something has to be taken away from you before you appreciate it. Sometimes it is necessary to lose before we can 
Fine. And in this case, what David is saying is, remember then when we had this common pursuit and we were unified. That was the day of Aaron. In that day and that time, we had something and we lost it. And now I think in about 1000 BC, David is saying, we have discovered it again. We have come together again. The people of the 12 tribes have united again around their desire to honor and please God in what they do. It's like oil running over. I thought it was hilarious that God gave me an example of this today. So, you know, you guys, I, I know, I, I, I don't even get emails about it anymore. Praise be Jesus. But, you know, some of you like that I teach from this table, and some of you don't. And um, some of you like this chair, and some of you hate this lime chair. I really don't. It doesn't matter to me. People say, why do you do that? And the answer is, do you know how awesome it is not to have a pulpit between me and you? Do you know? No, you don't. It's amazing. It's incredible. This is where I want to be, out among you, and this is freeing to me. So I'm going to do it whether you like it or not, but, you know, if you do, let me know, and if you don't, keep it to yourself. But at the end of the day, this table gets used for lots of things. I'll give you an example. This is the resting place of David Stoner's iPad Mini every Sunday. He has to move it before it's moved over here. Right, David? And I'm going to tell you the secret. This is why David has to have his iPad mini so close to him. He can no longer see his phone. Okay, so it needs to be close. I couldn't either, David. It's no big deal. So that gets moved. But that's no big deal. But a new band member in the 930 service today thought it looked like a good place to put his coffee. This guy happens, I can tell you for a fact, he happens to like a lot of sugar in his coffee and a lot of cream. Why do I know that? Because he spilled it on this table this morning. And when I came up to pray at the beginning of worship, it was overflowing on my table. So while everybody else is worshiping, they're looking at me, what are you doing? I had to go grab a bunch of paper towels. It's all over here to the side somewhere. Wipe it off, get it clean, and so help me. The aura of coffee still lingers on this table. I still smell it. And that's the picture here. It's overflowing to a point. See, the oil in that day served two purposes. One was to cleanse because you can clean with oil. If you cook on a griddle, you know what I mean. But the other purpose of the oil was to make someone smell more pleasant than we sometimes do when we don't bathe every day, and they did not bathe every day in Aaron's day, it overflowed. And the aura of it was magnificent. So David says, remember that? Remember that unity? That's what we're looking for every time we come to the temple. His second illustration is just as interesting. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, one in the north, one in the south. One in a lush green place and one in the desert or on the edge of the desert. Jerusalem was on the edge of the desert. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, I think you will vouch for me in saying there is no dew on the ground when you wake up in Jerusalem. But when you're in the north of the country, there's a lot of dew on the ground. And if you happen to go to Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon stays wet pretty much year round. And so here's what David is saying is like Hermon has its dew and Jerusalem's dew is the unity of God's people. It causes God's people to prosper in the same way that the dew on the top of Mount Hermon causes it to grow lushly. So the question is, 
What does unity do to God's people? And the answer is it causes them to prosper together for Jesus' name, for God's name. Why? Because we can do more together than we ever thought about doing alone. And when God's Spirit is in the midst of it, it all gets amplified and multiplied. For there the Lord bestows His blessing. Where God's people are unified, that's where God is going to bestow His blessing, even life, forevermore. Now, I I say this once in a while to myself, but I'll tell you, we're going to be related forever, you and I. We're going to be in heaven together, and we're going to be on the new heaven and the new earth together, and we're going to be related forever. We'd better get used to it. And the way to do that is to love it, adore it, appreciate it, cherish it. Behold how good. Behold how pleasurable it is when God's people dwell together in unity. Now, what's happened here is that our pilgrim started his journey from home with one mindset, and he has gotten to worship with another. He's made a leap. He's made an enormous transition. Let me tell you how he did it and then what it looks like. He's done it by first lifting his eyes. Do you guys remember, were you here the Sunday I preached Psalm 120 and asked why would anyone begin this book of Psalm, this little piece of the Psalms with that scripture? It's a lament about how nasty all the people who live around him are. He curses them all in the scripture. How they are a bunch of liars and cheats and good for nothing, no count, idiots. That's what Psalm 120 is. If you don't believe me and you weren't here, go read it for yourself. And then in Psalm 121, he says, well, to heck with them, literally. I'm going to lift my eyes to the hills because that's where my only help comes from. I can't get any help from these people. My only help comes from God. So he starts his journey lifting his eyes, Psalms 120 and 121. Then in Psalm 122, as Kalen Matthews so well presented on the 4th of July weekend, he chooses joy. And the pilgrim has gotten on God's side, Psalms 123 and 124. And he has reached for restoration of God's people and of his own life, Psalm 125 and 126. And he's ready for work, even the work of worship, Psalm 127 and 128. And he has gotten desperate for God, as we discovered a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 129 and 130. And he has been humbled, as we discussed last week, Psalm 131 and 132. And now add to that that he has sought unity with God's people, because we can't be unified with God if we're disunified from God's people, Psalm 131. 33. And now, now, he's ready to worship. Why is he ready to worship? Well, let's look at his life, first of all, and see what's happened. Just take a look, if you will, with me at Psalms 125 and 6 and 121, 1 and 2. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me, he says, as he leaves his house. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and these deceitful tongues. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, which he does not literally. Meshach's one of the worst two places he can think of. And here's the other, that I live among the tents of Kedar. These nasty people, 
Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. So I'll lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, and that's the only place that I'm going to get any help. Now, you hear the tone? Just out of curiosity, have you ever left the home of your being to come to church that way? Any amens out there? I won't ask you if you did this morning because it might indict the person you're sitting with. So, I've been there. I appreciate the honesty of the Old Testament. It's just laid bare. It's laid out there. This is how human beings are. This is who we are sometimes. After all of this work, the singing through these psalms of ascent, these pilgrim songs, and all of the emotional and spiritual wrestling that he has done, look at where he winds up. Psalms 133 and 134. I'll read 134 in a moment. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Is that what you say when you get in the car with someone to come to church? You get, how good it is. How pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. Praise the Lord. I pra- praise all the servants of the Lord. I love you all. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who is the maker of heaven and earth. Now, am I the only one who can see a change here? What has happened? This person has had what my wife calls relative to me an attitudinal adjustment. Any of you ever had an attitudinal adjustment? Anybody ever told you you need one? Well, God told this pilgrim, never happened to me. God told this pilgrim when he left his house, you, my friend, need an attitudinal adjustment. Lay it out there to me, and I'm going to walk you up the steps of the temple until you're ready to worship. And then he's in a very different place. What has he done? He has gotten out of his own way. Do you ever have a hard time getting out of your own way? Are you like me and that's like every day? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to get out of your own way. Let's take a look now with some italics added at what's happened. What we can see is that when this pilgrim left his home, he had a really bad case of chronic long me and mine-itis. Have you ever had that? Me and mine-itis. This is what it looks like. I call upon the name of the Lord in my distress, and He answers me. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and deceitful tongues. That's everybody else. Woe to me, that I dwell in Meshach. I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Look at the shift. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. 
Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, He who is the maker of heaven and earth. Now, it's subtle, but do you notice even the shift in the way He views God? Not God that can give something to me. Not the God that I come to because I want something or because my life isn't working out at the moment exactly like I want it to. Not the God I'm coming to only because I need help, want help, want something. But to the God whose presence I crave, the God I love, He who is the maker of heaven and earth, this is my creator. This is my God, and I will praise Him. He's gotten out of His own way. And now, having made that journey, we can offer pure praise. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, all of you outside the walls of the place of worship. May He bless you from where God is honored and praised and glorified whether you deserve it or not. Because He, this God, is the maker of heaven and earth. That's a lot in three verses. Don't you agree with me? In fact, let's just read it together, can we? Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, who is the maker of heaven and earth. Now, you read that like you're reading the Pledge of Allegiance. So let's think about it for a moment. Praise the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, the one true living God, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? In the day this was written, I believe Solomon wrote this, or one of Solomon's priests, I think it was written to be the conclusion, the worship conclusion of the Psalms of, of Ascent. And in the day they wrote it, once the temple was opened, it was to be worshipped in every single second of every single minute of every single hour of every single day of every single year for all of time. One temple... That's where God lived. And so there were servants or priests who were chosen to worship God. And in the Old Testament, we read these as the watches in the night. So it might be that I am on watch at 2 o'clock tomorrow morning, which means I get up at 2 and I praise the Lord for my watch, which is several hours long. And then someone comes in after me and praises, and another, and another, and another, usually in pairs, so that the worship of God is taking part, place in the temple at all times, no matter what. And so what Solomon is saying here is you are not coming to worship. Now, listen to our language. I'm going to worship. We usually say, I'm going to church. This is it. This is the event it has a start, and by God's grace, it has an end. It has, it has a period, it has a season, and I go in, I go out, and I've done it. I've done my thing, and I think of that as being singular and belonging to me. This is my church, and this is my worship service, and that's my pastor, etc. We think in terms of ourselves, and that event 
as far as we're concerned, is worship. But since the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, I dare say, there have been very few moments and all of them were early. Certainly in the last thousand years or so, there's not been one second of one minute of one day that somebody around the globe was not in the house of God worshiping, which is to say the worship of God is ongoing all the time. Some group of God's people is gathered all the time. When you slept last night, assuming you slept last night, I didn't sleep too well. When you were asleep last night, somebody was worshiping somewhere. When you were watching the meteor shower, somebody was worshiping somewhere. When you were doing whatever you were doing, somebody was worshiping. When you got up this morning, somebody was already at worship, worshiping on your behalf. And when you walked into this room, you did not come to worship. You joined God's people in the ongoing, eternal worship of God. Isn't that cool? I think that's awesome. I just think that's amazing. I don't care how early you come, you're not the first to the party. Somebody is worshiping in the house of the God because, see, what happened is the temple became the body of Jesus, the dwelling place of God, and the temple was crucified and resurrected, and when the resurrection happened, Jesus spread His Spirit to His people, and on Pentecost, they became aware that they now were the house of God, the dwelling place of God. The dwelling place of the Holy Spirit is where? In His people, in us, and it will be for eternity. Now, God's dwelling is with us, and we are His dwelling place. And the church is worshiping all the time, and you need to envision yourself not coming to church, not coming to worship, but enjoining the worship of God that is nonstop, never-ending, all the time, it never stops. I am walking into a continual stream, a movement of the worship of God. So what Solomon's saying here is the worship was happening before you got there, and it's going to be happening after you're gone, and you're just going to become a part of it. And so he says, because of that, you ought to lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. Now, can I repeat that? For those of you who tell me it's not biblical. I actually had someone tell me two weeks ago, it is unbiblical to worship demonstrably. I said, I'm going to preach on this in two weeks if you want to come. No, because you people are worshiping too demonstrably. We did a sermon series on this a few summers ago, and man, the active participation in worship just went way up. It was amazing. I thought, this will never end. I mean, once people get, get this, they, they won't know how to quit. Well, they did know how to quit. And over time, people became very self-conscious again. When you get me and myonitis, you cannot worship the one true living God. You've got to get out of your own way, get out of yourself, and you've got to be prepared to worship. I'll, I'll give you one clue. If the word hallelujah is ever sung in worship and your hands are not up, you are not following the pattern of Scripture. If the words praise the Lord are uttered, and your hands are not up. You are not following the pattern of Scripture. Solomon says here, get active in the worship of God. Lose yourself in the worship of God. Stop being so proper, because nothing is more proper than losing your proper self in the proper worship of God. 
Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. I, I woke up this morning after reading this last night. I didn't sleep much. I'm telling you. I don't know why. But I, I woke up this morning. I woke up singing, Lift up your hands in the sanctuary. Lift up your hands and praise the Lord. Meg, can you come up and sing that for me? You know that song, right? You guys have sung it before. Higher and higher. You know that, you know that song? Lift up your hands. I should have made Butch do it today. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. And may your praise be such that it pours forth from the place God is glorified to become a blessing to everyone, not just to those of us who worship and praise. Now let me ask you, were you really ready to worship when you got here today? Were you prayed up and prepared? Were you walking in the door saying, the Lord is there, He's being worshipped all the time, and I'm about to step into the presence of my God. Were you there when you walked in? Because if you were, you'd have read that Scripture differently. This was meant to be sung by the pilgrim after a long journey reaching the doors of the temple and ready to step into God's presence. And I don't know what the song sounded like, but I know what the words sound like, so would you try that again with me? Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, He who is the maker of heaven and earth. Amen and amen, because that's worship. And if you were ready... You experience the presence of the Lord in just uttering those words. Now look, it didn't happen like I planned. This whole series was supposed to get us today. Brett told me so. <laughs> the companies told us about 10 dates. This was the one. We'll definitely be ready, they said, by then. And we had this grand thing at the end of this with this psalm in our heads, we were going to get up and march over to the new place of worship, never to be found over here again. And we move over to the new place. It was, it was all going to happen, but maybe God said, Jim and Columbia, there's such a thing as Tove. There's what's good in my time, and you're not quite ready yet. He's getting us there. I feel the movement. I hope you do too. He's bringing a lot of new people into our fellowship. He's brought a number of you back of late. He's working on us. He's about to do something amazing. But I, I think that God's saying, and I hate to say this because it scares me. When you're ready, I'm ready. I can hold up those windows and that steeple as long as it takes for you to get ready to actually enter a new era of unity and worship in the life of a church I plan to use in some amazing ways. So it's time to get ready, folks. It's time to be ready when those doors open to walk in and enter a new day, not of my worship, but of our worship. Not of my unity, but of our unity. Not of my anything. It's ours, and it's ours beyond here. It belongs to the people of God and even to the world around us that doesn't yet believe. In other words, I'm asking you, friends, I'm asking you, are you ready to rumble? Yeah. 
I guess we'll see. <laughs> Father, we are ready for all you have for us, and we are doing our part. We're lifting our foot so that you can put it down. And lifting it means we are preparing ourselves for your beauty, your goodness, your grace, your mercy. We are preparing ourselves to be in your presence and to praise you like never before. We are searching for that unique way you've called Columbia to be your people, that unique way you've called us to worship. And entering this new space, there's nothing magical about it, but Lord, you can use it in powerful spiritual ways by allowing it to become a point of transition for us, leaving some things behind and capturing the momentum you want to build among us. We're ready, Lord. We're getting ready. And we know that when the moment comes, you're ready to release your Spirit, to pour it out on us, to cause us to become everything you've dreamed we will be. And as we live into your dreams, we will say, it is good and it is also pleasurable to be together about your work. Now, Lord, there is someone listening to me for whom the next step of being ready is just to receive your Son, Jesus Christ, as their Savior and Lord, to confess their sin to you and say, Lord, I know that you sent your Son to die for my forgiveness and you raised Him for my recreation. And for that person listening to me, I ask, Lord, that you would attend to their prayer as they call on Jesus and receive not only your Spirit but your joy. But for all of us, Lord, there's another step. Somewhere along these 15 steps to the temple courtyard, somewhere there is one place in here we've discovered that we struggle with ourselves. So, Lord, give us the courage to get out of our own way, to worship You for Your sake, and to trust You for the rest. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Columbia, together, we are all new, all in, and all out. So you go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed week. I'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.